morning church, Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28. The, Lord of the, the, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it, join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to, say to them, thus says the, the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them in them to their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions but I will save them for, from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is the very word of God. Well, last uh, Sunday was Easter Sunday. That was a great day. And I'm glad you came back. Um, we come back every Sunday, of course, because we're always, as Christians, going back to Easter, aren't we? Going back to that first day of the week when something striking and amazing took place. The resurrection of Jesus is... For us as Christians, the great reality in the world and in history that we just have to keep going back to over and over again. And as we come to uh, this place in Ezekiel, this morning, Ezekiel chapter 37, the last half or so of the chapter, um, this promise that began in this valley of vision of dry bones that Ezekiel had at the beginning of the chapter is of course, a promise to uh, ancient Israel in captivity in Babylon that God was going to restore, almost like bringing back to life the nation from the depths to which it had plummeted 
in the, under the judgment, the wrath of God. And Ezekiel gives that particular promise, this particular prophecy that God's going to restore his people using, as we saw last week, this, this image, this vision, this um, idea of a resurrection from the dead in order to make the promise that God's going to bring restoration to his people, he uses the image of resurrection to make the promise. So clearly, God wants to communicate to the people of God in exile, 6th century B.C., a long time ago, that he has a plan in the midst of their suffering, their punishment for their sins, their disobedience to their God. God is still up to something. His plan is clearly to join his people together, to be an invincible army sent out to accomplish his saving mission in the world. These things were beginning to become clear, perhaps, to the exiles as they're listening to this strange prophet Ezekiel in their day. God has a plan. He is planning to join his people together, making them into an invincible army sent out to accomplish his mission in the world. So let's look a little bit more in this particular prophecy at the end of chapter 37 about this this plan of God, this promise to restore his people together. And so this morning, I'd like to look at it with you and consider, first of all, the promise of restoration, the process in which the restoration will take place, and then the purpose. The P's are always easy to alliterate, but here it is. The promise of restoration, the process of restoration, and then the purpose for God restoring his people together. So first, the promise of restoration. So what we read here I don't know if you noticed this, but this is one of the most intriguing Old Testament prophecies. We who take the Bible seriously, and I'm guessing that that's all of you, we who take the Bible seriously ought to read this passage very carefully because it is one of the great Old Testament puzzles the kind of thing that has produced all kinds of variant interpretations. So, let's get started. In verse 15, Ezekiel tells us that the word of the Lord came to him, instructing him to perform another one of his sign acts. It's the last time that he'll do this in the book of Ezekiel. Here's what he does. He takes one stick and writes on it, for Judah... And the people of Israel associated with him. He takes a second stick and writes on it for Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then Ezekiel is directed to take the two sticks and in some way put them together to be one stick in his hand. You got that, right? Like that's what he does. If you're watching, you got the video camera going and uh, you're watching Ezekiel, that's a summary of what he does. Now, it's not too difficult to understand what this is supposed to mean. And when we see the interpretation in verse 19, we're not really surprised. God says he is going to join Judah and Joseph 
together and make them one. In verse 22, God promises to put Judah and Joseph together and make them one nation in the land of Israel, no longer divided into two nations. Now that is quite the promise. Because anyone generally familiar with the Old Testament knows from the history of Israel that following the death of Solomon in the 10th century BC, Israel divided into two nations, right? You, you, you went to Sunday school growing up. You know that story? All right. So we're talking now for some 400 years, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been divided into two separate nations. And God promises right here in Ezekiel 37 that the day is coming when those, that separation will be no more. Now, just imagine if I, I was trying to get my mind around this, because I know it's, when you're talking about ancient history, it's like, okay, interesting. Let's, let's see if we could make it feel a little differently. Just imagine if someone today prophesied that the United States and the United Kingdom were going to go back together. After almost 250 years of division, not just coming together to be transatlantic allies, but to be once again one united nation. Does that feel a little more different to you? That's the kind of promise that God makes right here in Ezekiel 37. Now, if this prophecy comes true, then that would get somebody's attention, right? I mean, if somebody predicted that and then you lived to see the day, you would be like, wow, let's go back and read that prophecy again, wouldn't you? I mean, that, that's a striking thing. A after all, in this particular time, not only has 400 years of division kept the, the two nations separate from each other, but at this point in history in which Ezekiel is writing, the northern kingdom. Um, Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, uh, representative of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has practically been exterminated. The Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom, taking its capital city of Samaria in 722 B.C. You can read all about that in history. You can also find it in 2 Kings chapter 17. Assyria, when they conquered Samaria, took the upper classes of the conquered peoples and resettled them in other conquered places of their, of their kingdom. And the result of that policy was that the northern kingdom, the Jews that made up those northern exiled people, they began to intermarry with other people groups and struggled to maintain any kind of ethnic national identity. That's what the Assyrians wanted them to do, by the way. So through a process of assimilation with other people groups, the people from the northern kingdom became known as the lost tribes of Israel. So for this prophecy to be true, those lost tribes would need to be found. So who are they? 
Well, when the Jews in exile in Babylon, the ones that Ezekiel is writing to, were allowed to return to their homeland, this became a real problem. And it was expected that if you claim to be part of the people of God returning back to the promised land after these years of exile, it was expected that you would, in the words of Ezekiel or Ezra, chapter 2, verse 59, that you'd be able to prove your descent to substantiate that you belonged to Israel. This is a real problem, the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember, we studied Ezra. You guys remember that? This, became, this was like a, a major problem in the book. And it's not only a problem in Ezra and Nehemiah, 5th century B.C. It was a problem in the New Testament. It was a problem in the 1st century. Because the Samaritans, when you read your New Testament, the Samaritans were the people who said, well, we actually are the lost tribes. We're the ones, we are the descendants of, the, of those lost tribes of Israel. We are the ones who are part of this people. And if you remember in your New Testament, those Samaritans were not really accepted by the people from the southern kingdom. Now, this is even more, this is even more practical than you might think. Because there are, even to this day, plenty of others who have claimed this identity as the lost tribes of Israel. And our history books tell the story. British Israelism is the claim that the Anglo-Saxon people are the lost tribes of Israel. And this idea came about because something had to explain the apparent prosperity of the Anglo-Saxon people. And so somebody came along and said it's because they are under the blessing of God. They're the, they're the people of God returning. Herbert Armstrong's worldwide Church of God had roots in British Israelism. And many evangelicals have dabbled in this belief as well. Stephen Jeffries, probably not a name you're familiar with, but he was a prominent early leader of Pentecostalism, believed in British Israelism. But it's not just Anglo-Saxons who have, throughout history, made the claim that they are the lost tribes of Israel. Perhaps you've seen members of the black Hebrew Israelites right here in Oklahoma City. Interestingly, researchers in India have even argued that the Taliban in Afghanistan are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. Mormonism is deeply rooted in the question of who are the lost tribes of Israel. Not only does Mormonism suggest that the Native Americans are from the lost tribes, it also claims that the stick of Ephraim that we just read about is the Book of Mormon, and that it, joined together with the Bible as the stick of Judah, is what you have to have to get the whole picture of what God is up to in the world. So... Ezekiel 37, 15 through the end of the chapter, is massively important to the reality of the world in which we live even to this day. And after all, who wouldn't want to know what God is up to in the world? This prophecy says that this is what God's plan is, his plan, his promise to, to re reunify his people. This is what gets our attention. It's the kind of claim that is fodder for all kinds of cults 
and sexed within Judaism and Christianity. And by the way, by the way, where you find people who claim to be experts in Bible prophecy, looking toward here's what's going to happen, here's what's about to come, let me, let me open up the Bible and tell you exactly how it's going to come to pass, Ezekiel 37 will undoubtedly be one of their key texts. So you better watch for it. So let's be honest. Either this prophecy hasn't happened yet, so cue the speculation. You can just join, make your own religious sect out of identifying the lost tribes. Or it hasn't happened and never will. In other words, a failed biblical prophecy. And if that's the case, what else should we not trust? Or this prophecy has already happened in a quite surprising, unexpected way. I'll let you guess which one I believe. No, I'm not going to let you guess. I'm about to tell you. <laughs> but whatever answer persuades you, whether you are kind of an end times Christian, interested in how all the charts work out, or whether you're an unbeliever, skeptic, or whether you think that maybe what is predicted here has already come to pass, God's promise here to restore his people, to unite them into one nation, is going to seriously affect your view of the future. Or it will suggest you need not take the Bible seriously at all. So this is a promise, a promise of restoration that really is important. So now while there's always an element of mystery when you're dealing with prophecies, of the future, even at least in the 6th century B.C. This is something that God's saying he's about to do. It's going to do in the future. We need to, we got to do something. we got to draw some kind of conclusions. We can't just let it sit here and say, well, I don't know. God's, God will just work it out somehow. Let, let's, let's go in. Let's take a closer look. Because one of the striking features of this prophecy is the process, the sign act that Ezekiel is told to perform to make the point. Again, I kind of summarized it for you. If you're watching on the video camera in the 6th century B.C., you see him take these two sticks. You're like, eh, okay, whatever. But actually, I want you to notice the process of restoration that Ezekiel is told to put into visual symbol. It's easy to skip right over the process in verses 16 to 17. But then you get to verse 18, and the question that the exiles ask gives us pause. Ezekiel's taken these two sticks, wrote a couple words on each one, puts them together. And then they say, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Isn't it obvious? God's answer, which eventually comes in verses 21 to 22, is preceded in verses 19 and 20 by his taking us back over the process. So there's this emphasis twice in this passage on kind of what Ezekiel's performing, what he's doing. It seems that this final sign act that Ezekiel is told to perform might not be as easy to understand as we might think. Like, we have the, we have the interpretation in front of us, so we know what it means. You can go back, and it's, like, easy to see. But when he's doing it in front of their eyes, they're like, what, what does this mean? So here's why. Let's look at a couple of the features of the process. Here's the first thing. Ezekiel takes two 
sticks, the ESV says. <laughs> and I don't know about you, when I hear a stick, I'm like, this is the kindling for my fireplace, right? These little twigs. And that might be what he did. But the word, the Hebrew word that's here translated stick is the Hebrew word for a tree or a piece of wood. So what's interesting about it is Ezekiel, what's he do with it? He writes on it. And so perhaps now we shouldn't be thinking in our minds so much of a stick, but perhaps this is more like a piece of paper. It's something that Ezekiel has taken to write on. It's a tablet. No, not the tablet you have at home or that you're reading on right now. But a, a writing tablet. That's what he has taken up. In fact, what Ezekiel is told to write on these tablets, look at it. He doesn't just write Judah, Joseph. He writes for Judah. This is, a, this is an English translation of um, a, a Hebrew word here, a way of writing, which basically is like an inscription. So you're reading, when you're reading the Psalms, you know this about the Psalter, right? Uh, many of the Psalms have an inscription. You know what I'm talking about? It's like before verse 1. These are not editorial headings. They are probably part of the original uh, text. So when you're reading the Psalter and you see for David or a Psalm of David, it's probably a Psalm of David is what your English translates. But it's actually for David. It's the same thing that we find here. So these headings, just like the headings in the Psalms, are like an inscription. They imply that, they, that there's more written after the inscription, right? There's a longer text that follows. Now, Ezekiel doesn't tell us what might have followed, what comes next on his tablet, but when he puts the two together, we get the impression that the future of Israel and the future of Judah are in some way intertwined. They're bound together. That's the reason the exiles want to know, what does this mean? Because... Ezekiel might be saying to the exiles in Babylon, your future is tied up with the future of those lost tribes. And that's bad news, right? Or is God saying, and we know the answer because from the book of Ezekiel, it's been a promise of restoration. Ezekiel's saying, no, it's the other way around. The future of those lost tribes is bound up with your future. And I've already told you, your future is one of restoration. When God restores you, Judah, southern kingdom, he will also restore all Israel at the same time. Now, again, that simply had to have sound impossible. Maybe even despicable. Judah itself has barely survived the Babylonian exile. They are hanging on by a thread. How in the world could the lost tribes of Israel, lost by their intermarriage with pagan peoples, be restored along with them? And by the time, of course, we get to the New Testament, the idea that Jews might in some way be united to the Samaritans 
is about as repulsive an idea as could be suggested because you've read John chapter 4. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. So what would it take then for any kind of reunification of Israel to actually happen? I mean, there's, there's just so many complexities that would have to be resolved. It's mind-boggling to think how this kind of prophecy could ever come to pass. Take two disparate entities like this and trying to make them one would be like trying to unite two magnets with the same pole of each magnet facing the other. You don't get union, you get repulsion. One that you don't just see, but you can feel, right? So this is why I say that this prophecy in Ezekiel is so astounding. It's just hard to imagine how it could be so. I think you should take your Bible seriously. I think you should read it and demand answers. Don't just read this and say, well, I guess so. This is an astounding promise. So how do we know it could come to pass? How could this be so? And here's the hint. It's Ezekiel 37. It's found right here after the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's suggesting to us that the fulfillment of this prophecy is going to take something like a resurrection from the dead to make it happen. The sign act itself seems to be telling us that as well. In her commentary on Ezekiel, Margaret O'Dell highlights the fact that the reunification is portrayed as the joining together of tribes. Did you notice that? Not kingdoms, tribes. Perhaps indicating, she says, that this reunification will require a rebuild starting from the ground up. Did you watch our team lose this week, Thunder? We weren't supposed to get that far. We got a glorious future. The rebuild is about over. Hallelujah. But God is saying, when I do this kind of work, here's what it's going to take. This is the process. i got to start from the ground up. I've got to rebuild this thing from scratch. To put Israel back together again will require nothing less than a dramatic act of God. Something entirely new. Something practically unexplainable. Now, this is also one of the most important points that you and I, I think, can glean from this prophecy. The prophecy, of course, is originally given to Jewish exiles in Babylon who are losing hope that God will ever restore their fortunes. Here, God says to them that he is not only going to restore their fortunes, he's going to do something even better than that. He's going to restore the entire nation. He's going to reverse 400 years of divided history in some kind of special act of God. Something like a resurrection from the dead. If God can pull that off, then all the other details, all the other questions about how well, how is this and that going to come together? How is it all going to be restored? How is it all going to be made right? 
Well, if God can put the nation back together again after all these years of divided history, then those little details will surely be answered as well. So Christian, let me ask you, where do you find hope when you are in despair? When everything seems lost, where do you put down your anchor? We ought to go back to Easter, to the Christian hope of resurrection. That is our greatest source of strength. Yes, of course, there is the comfort of knowing that even though death will come, it cannot separate us from Christ. That's a great comfort. But the hope of Christianity is not that we will adapt to the sorrowful future ahead of us, but that in the future, the sorrows will be undone. If you are sure that God is going to resurrect your dead body, then all the other problems you face in this life will certainly be worked out as well. So, we find ourselves going back to Easter. It really is the center of our faith, and it's the source of our hope, and it's even more than that. God's promise to restore his people through some dramatic process implies that God also has a very important purpose for doing it in the first place. What might that purpose be? Why is God going to restore the people, bring them back to be one again? There could be no doubt that this prophecy in the second half of Ezekiel 37 has to be read in light of the prophetic vision in the first half of the chapter. When Ezekiel is told back in verse 11 that the dry bones are the whole house of Israel, not just the Jewish exiles from the southern kingdom, the question that had to have been raised back in verse 11, really? God is going to save Israel? All Israel? And the text today comes back and said, you heard me right. It's exactly what I'm promising to do. And so, if that's what God is saying, all the way back in the 6th century B.C., the story simply could not end there. You can't just say, well, that's cool. Nice thing God did. You have to say, like we saw last week, you have to see that the restoration of Israel is portrayed as an exceedingly great army. Right? When the valley of dry bones, when those bones are restored, Ezekiel says, I see an exceedingly great army. And where you have an army, you have a purpose. Where you have an army, you have a mission. It makes a big difference then whether you believe that this prophecy that we're reading today has been fulfilled or not. Because if it hasn't been fulfilled yet, the purpose is not as easy to see. But if it's been fulfilled, then you, say, then you have to ask the question, why has it been fulfilled? What's the purpose? What's the mission for this army? And I believe that the New Testament claim is that this prophecy has most certainly already come to pass. Now, okay, you should say, prove it. 
so. I got five minutes to prove my case. Let me give you a few tips. I believe this is one of Paul's goals for three of the most dense chapters in all the Bible. We've already studied them. Romans 9 through 11. Go back and read it again in light of Ezekiel 37. Here's what you'll find. The unbelief of ethnic Israel, of the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, Paul says, is no proof that God's promise has failed. He says, here we are. Israel has, by and large, rejected their Messiah. So has God's word failed? Like this one, Ezekiel 37? And he's saying, no way, absolutely not. He argues then at length that what we must come to see is the dramatic act of God that has been done in Jesus as Israel's true Messiah. Paul says in chapter 11, Romans 11.1, God has certainly not rejected his people. There is, he says, at the moment, a remnant chosen by grace. You see it? God has started over. He started from the ground up. And then he says this in Romans eleven twenty six. This is what God said he would do all along. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. What has happened in Jesus, what is now happening as people believe in Jesus, is that God is bringing his army back to life in Jesus so he can send them on his mission. What is the mission? What are the marching orders for the army? Well, if we begin to grasp the magnificence of what God has done in Jesus, then we will know what it is. I don't. I can't predict the future. God has told us. We said it earlier in the creed. Yes, a glorious future is coming when Christ appears. We sing about it. Yes, and amen. But what I do know is the magnificence of what has already been done in the person of Jesus. First, we will know who is a part of His army, who is counted among all Israel. And when we read our Bibles, we come to Revelation chapter 7. Yeah, more fodder for cults and sex, I know, Revelation. But if you read so much of Revelation as something already fulfilled in Jesus, here's what you'll notice. The 140, Revelation 7 has this image of 144,000. Remember that? You have the Jehovah's Witness ever knock on your door? You got into the 144,000? So yeah, this is speculative stuff. Or is it? You see, the 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, just keep reading a little bit more. It's from every tribe, it says. But then right after that, the 144,000, Revelation 7 says, is joined with a great multitude from every nation and tribe. And as many New Testament commentaries on Revelation will tell you, the 144,000 joined together with a multitude from every tribe and tongue is a picture of all believers in Christ from every age. It's already beginning to be fulfilled. You saw it on the video. It's right in front of your eyes. God has done what he said he would do. He started from the ground up. 
He laid a foundation, as you read throughout the New Testament, in the 12 apostles. You think that number is insignificant? And what is the mission? What do you send an army out to do? In a word, to conquer. <laughs> you don't assemble an army to lose. You assemble an army to win, to overcome. But here is the striking reality of the new Israel. Reshaped, remade, reformed in the Messiah of Israel, in Jesus, in order to overcome. You've read your Bible. In order to overcome, you do not overcome with a show of power, but by faithfulness to Christ, even to the point of death. How do they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You have to be resurrection people, where this is foolishness. You can lay down your life knowing you'll take it up again when he comes. That is how the kingdom of God will advance and will overcome. Never by a mighty display of earthly power, but by faithfulness to the one who in his faithfulness laid his life down for us. And then central to that mission then, so that's a hard job. How do you like that mission? Sending you out to conquer by dying. <laughs> Laying your life down. Central to that mission then, throughout the New Testament, is the planting of churches. Do you begin to see why? Because these churches are communities of faith. They are outposts of the kingdom of God. They are little military units. They are where the people of God are to be found, discipled, and deployed. If an army's going to win, it's going to have to stay together. You, you do not do God's mission by yourself. And the promise of God, we've already seen today, is that his army, his church, is invincible. We have a song about that. So next time we sing, I'm not singing it today. Next time we sing, oh, Church of, church of Christ. Is that a denomination we're singing about when we sing that? Okay, just making sure. So, oh, Church of Christ, invincible, the people of the Lord. Do you see this? this is, it, I'm, now, I'm gonna, now I'm hooked on it. Empowered by the Spirit's breath. Man, right out of Ezekiel 37. Nourished by his words. It's almost like people read their Bibles when they write songs. Amazing. This is what you're singing about. My desire for us, church, is we begin to understand it, grasp it, hold on to the significance of this. Because the church for which he gave his life cannot fail. You know why? It's a resurrected army. It's a resurrected army. We are in Christ Invincible. So long as we are the church. The church, of course, is the people of God, the believers in Jesus, those who depend not on their own power, 
on the power of the one who gave his life for us, the power of his Holy Spirit. In fact, if you just look at here at Ezekiel 37, we're done, verses 23 to following. Just take a look at it. What will this invincible army be like? They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. What he says in the rest of chapter 37 is a repeat of what we saw earlier just a couple chapters ago. This is the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace that God inaugurated in Jesus of Nazareth. So that when you come to the end of this chapter, verse 28, then the nations will know. We might say now, then the rest of the nations will know. Because the nations have already begun to come and be a part of his army. They've been joined together with the, as the true Israel of God. So then the rest of the nations, the rest of the world will begin to see that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So we have to hold the line. God sent his son, gave his life in order to make us one. To make us one. When we are God's people together, that is when the nations will know. It means that we must be diligent then to preserve the unity within this church, for sure. Absolutely, we covenanted together. When we have difficulties in relationships with one another, we're going to seek peace together. Why? Because the unity of the church matters for the mission of God. Do you see it? Do you see it? You're not sent on mission by yourself. You're sent on mission with your brother or sister sitting next to you or maybe on the other side of the room today. It means we must be diligent to preserve this unity not only within our own church, but with other churches. It's one of the reasons that on our, in our pastoral prayer regularly, we pray for other churches. We're not in competition. We're in the same army. United together. Of course, that brings all sorts of challenges. Just read the book of Acts. We don't always get along. But what we must not do is shoot at one another who are believers in Jesus Christ. We don't need more division within the body of Christ. We need to press into the unity that is ours at the cost of his own blood. So it means we have to go back to Easter. Remembering that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is the beginning. A new creation has dawned. John picks up his pen and writes his gospel. And how are we going to start it? Let's start it like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and was manifest. Why? So that we might believe in the one in which the true Israel would be restored. That's who you are. That's the mission we're on. Let's always go back to Easter. And may God help us to fulfill his plan. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're Christians today by the grace of God. Not everyone who heard the good news of Jesus was convinced. 
Jesus. For all sorts of reasons, it would be explainable why we would not believe either. But in your grace, you have brought us to faith in Christ. You've brought us into the reality of the great prophetic fulfillment that something new has been created, a new creation, just like in Genesis 1. A new thing has started from the ground up. God is building his kingdom through his people, through his army, sent out on a mission, just like Jesus did for us. So we also pick up our cross and follow after him, laying our life down, knowing that in Christ, yes, even our body is secure. Even our body is secure. So this is what a mission this is for God. We need your help. We need your grace. We cannot do it on our own. We need your power. We need you to nourish us on your word. We need you to remind us of who we are, people of the Lord, people united to Christ. So would you come now and by your grace, remind us, assure us, and energize us for the work that you have for us to do this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.